This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 298. And the quote of the day is more of a saying, and I think you should live by this. Authenticity over everything. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope you had a fantastic weekend, and I hope that you're rocking and rolling here during the week. And a quick note, if you want to receive the emails from Drummer's Resource, I send out an email every Monday called Nick's Monday Mix, and that is basically the new podcast that comes out on Monday, but also some other things that I think you'll dig. It'll be uh, something stuff that I'm watching, whether it's books that I'm reading, whether it's um, you know some cool things that I that I think you should check out, and it is called a Nick's Monday Mix. You can get that for free, and then on Friday I also send out what's called That's a Wrap. So it sends you everything that was released from Drummers Resource uh, in the week. So if you're already on the mailing list, you should be getting these both of these emails already. It's not a separate mailing list or anything. But if you don't get these emails, you can just go to drummersresource.com and sign up. It's 100% free, obviously. But also you get a copy of my ebook called Stick Control Variations. And this is 11 creative exercises to help you move or help you improve, sorry, your groove, your feel, your independence, all that fun stuff. And again, that's 100% free just by signing up for the mailing list. So now that we got that out of the way, let's get into this conversation. This is something that I did with Eric Harlan a little while back. And this was a, a live masterclass Q&A thing that we did together uh, as part of Drummer's Resource Pro when that was around. And the same, I, I released one of these with Calvin Rogers, and I'm releasing this one because this there's so much valuable information in here, and I love the Q and A format because it's not me asking the questions; it's other people asking the questions, and so it gets it it gets it outside of my normal sort of comfort zone and gets it out of, outside of the normal questions that I would think to ask. And some of the questions that are asked, I'm thinking, oh, I would have. I would have never thought to ask that question. So it's really cool to to really open it up a bit and and get some different influence from people and get some different questions asked. Also, it's worth noting, I already had Eric on the podcast before, so I get deep into his backstory and we have a really great conversation uh, and that is session 183. If you want to check that out, you can find it at drummersresource.com forward slash session 183 or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's just number 183. So check that out. And without further ado, the one and only Eric Harlan. Eric, what's happening, man? I appreciate you doing this. I know the the people attending appreciate it as well, man. Oh man, it's totally cool. Having a good time. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Man, pleasure. We're, sp- we're spending we're spending a lot of QT together lately, man. I'm liking it. Oh man, hey, more than me. Yeah. So anytime we're doing this, if you guys see me looking down, I'm either taking notes or I have my phone here and I'm reading questions that people submitted. So I'm not like, I'm not texting or Snapchatting or, or anything else. So just want to make that clear. All right. So uh, just before we get started, if, if you'll take literally like 30 seconds for the people who are attending, who don't know who you are, who, who didn't listen to the podcast, literally like 30 seconds, a minute, just a brief history of, of who you are and what you do before we get rolling. So we can build a little bit of context for the people. 
I'm Eric Carlin. Uh, I'm a drummer. Uh, uh, I actually like to think of myself as more than a drummer. I'm an artist, uh, you know, musician, uh, uh, a life liver, <laughs> a human being, a spirit, um, everything. Uh, just having fun. Uh, I'm currently known as a jazz drummer uh, in the jazz idiom, but uh, I've done a bunch of different things. Uh, I'm a lover of life, so I don't know how else to explain. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I like it. Um, so as I mentioned, there's a lot of stuff that we covered in that in that uh, in the podcast. So we're not going to dive into all the deep stuff that we talked about on the podcast. We talked about man, we went deep. We talked about meditating, all kinds of stuff. And you can check that out: drummersresource.com forward slash session one eight three. So let's start with the first question from Neil. It says, "What is your approach to playing and learning melodies?" Ooh, playing and learning melodies. Wow, that's amazing. Um, wow, playing and learning melodies. Well, I don't know if I have an actual approach. Um, you tend to hear the melody uh, once you hear it. And I'm saying that like, you know, once um, I guess the composer or you hear the tune, the melody tends to state itself. And if you don't hear it right away, then you can sit with it for a while. And um that, I mean, that's kind of my process. I sit with the melody for a minute because I feel like more than what's written on page, the melody for me uh, outlines the song or at least the shape of the tune. And uh, also the sections uh, in the past uh, with different composers or different bands that I play with when a, a, you know, a certain composer brings a tune into the band. Uh, I'm really listening to the shape of the tune. That includes the melody, that includes the outline of the tune as well. And, and so once I hear that, then it, it gives me a little bit more flexibility because sometimes people have a hard time writing out drum parts. Uh, they don't really know what they want the drummer to actually play. And so they hint at a few things, but it's not necessarily exactly what they're going for. All right. So you're and saying you the person, the person who wrote the tune doesn't, doesn't exactly necessarily. Okay. Okay. The person who wrote the tune. And sometimes, you know, it's the actual composer and sometimes it's an arrangement. So it's like um, a guy that you're playing with in the band is, you know, he has an idea of something that he's hearing and he would like for you to, you know, elaborate on that idea. And so I first I try to get guys to be as clear as possible. And if not, I, I really love it if me the complete musical freedom to come up with my own set of ideas or the way that I'm hearing. And, uh, and then you get both, you know, both cases are great. Um, because one allows you to be creative, but the other one allows you to um, just try different things and just see what you can come. I mean, to see if you can actually execute what it is that they're actually talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a practice within itself. So I think that answers it. Yeah, I would say so. Um, so the next question comes from Christian, who said, how do you approach polyrhythmic grooves? And could you provide any examples? Thank you, man. He's going to rhythmic rolls grooves. Oh, grooves. Okay. Yeah. I was about to say, wow, that's kind of crazy. Uh, polyrhythmic grooves. Um, hmm. How do I approach polyrhythmic grooves? I, um, I'm, I analyze everything to the T. Definitely. Um, my approach to polyrhythm is the fact that I'll take fives, I'll take sevens, I'll take nines, I'll take elevens, everything. And I dissect it to the core. So when I'm thinking about five, you know, I'm thinking about you know, five two, five four, five sixteen, 
mm-hmm. you know, which is all the same thing. It just depends on the BPM, you know, where the actual pulse is, where the actual uh, beats per minute lie. Right. So, but then within the five, I'm thinking I'll try two, three or three, two. So it's like one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, or one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, you know, just that basic, you know, you know, formation. Uh, the same thing with seven. Uh, you get a little bit more leeway with seven. You can go, you know, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, or one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, or like one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, you know, you can change it up however you want to, but that's. And the beauty of it is you can, you can piece it all together so you can take a two and then a two and then a three and you can you know and then a three and then a two and then a two yeah. or however you want to do it i mean and the thing is yeah if you want to elongate the process you can go it's whatever equals to seven or whatever equals to 14 or whatever equals to 21 whatever equals to 28 it just depends on how you want to graph it so uh, uh, so can, let's can we dive into this a little bit and sorry for interrupting you but i remember years ago when i learned this and when I first heard it, when it was getting explained to me, I was like, I don't get it. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you mean, right? So, so now that we're talking about it, let's, since I, I had the opportunity to maybe with, you, you know, with your help, make this a lot easier for someone who's listening. So when, okay. when you're saying getting it to equal, you know, let's say, let's just say we're going to get it to equal 16, right? Just for number's sake, for bars. Okay. Um, so okay. explain what you mean by getting it to equal a number. Uh, well, I mean, it's hard to get seven to equal 16, but... Well, seven, yeah, seven, right, right, right. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I, I like that. Yeah, that would be seven and nine. So basically, two sevens and then a, a two-four block, you know. Right. So that's something that you can play around with. Uh, you know, it's still an eight, it's still in four. But at the same time, you can you can put two bars of seven in there. You just know that you have two to carry over. So basically, what we're getting to is that it's all mathematics. Mm-hmm. And then after you understand that it's all mathematics, then the process is taking that and then uh, pretty much training your muscle memory to be able to execute that on the drum set. And now I don't want drummers to get too much into just the mathematics of it because that's something that you can't uh, um, regurgitate when you're on stage. Mm-hmm. Like once the, you know, when the lights are on and then the song starts, you know, I don't care how hard you practice, you know, metric modulation and how much you want to put, you know, five into four and seven, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you're not going to have a moment to be able to sit there and count it out before you do it. It's one of those things that it has to become instinctual. Uh, and so that's why, for me, the most natural process is to, um, you know, I say this all the time, is to play free. Play free in the process to where that your muscle memory gets used to whatever time displacement. Like it, your body tends to understand, and your mind tends to understand um, just like a elastic time. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. And you definitely, because you, you don't want to... time. You don't want to be on stage. Say, What's that? Uh, you don't want to be on stage like, all right, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one. You know, or like, okay, where's this thing going to land if I'm in four and I'm playing seven? Okay, it's going to, how many times is this yeah. going to circle around before? You don't want that. You want, to be able, <laughs> you want to be able to always remain creative. That's the whole thing. You want to be able to take what's happening and create around that. So that's why, you know, training your body to hear all rhythms 
which I, I feel like you know, there's something about free improvisation that in a way trains your muscles to hear all rhythms. Now, uh, that's free improvisation on one end where it says free improvisation by itself, but it's also helpful to hear what you're doing freely up against something like metric. So, you know, you can, you can have time in four or you can have like a metronome play in seven. And then instead of you trying to think about playing actually seven, you allow the, the metronome to be like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, you know, it keeps that pulse, but you can, in a, in a sense, you know, daydream or just dream all over that. So you're just playing anything that you feel like playing in that moment. That way you feel the freedom inside of that rhythm. And what happens is, is you start to internalize it. And it, it takes a while, it takes a minute, but it's a natural course of being able to internalize that rhythm so that when you do play it on stage and when someone introduces that type of rhythm, it's not something that you feel like you get restricted in and you have to go like, you know, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, you know, you really start to hear it's like boom, 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 you just you're existing within the time, but also respecting the time as well. So that's I feel is the best point because I don't think people have a hard time playing in odd meters person because we all can count. Right. Uh, I think people have a hard time expressing themselves in art music. And that's, uh, I feel like for me, it's the best um, practice routine to be able to express yourself in so any type of art music situation. Do you think that, that people overanalyze all of it and sort of freak themselves out about playing in odd time signatures and, and it just doesn't make sense because they either overthink it or they're just, they haven't practiced it. Like we all know how to play in four just because we hear four all the time. It's just the same way that we know how to speak English. If you live in the United States, because you hear it all the time. Exactly. It's, it's all comes down to practice. Um, if you not, if you don't live inside of what that is, then it's always going to feel you know, unfamiliar to, mm-hmm. uh, just natural. Right. So, um, like for me, I'm, I'm more familiar with it just because, uh, I've been around a lot of composers that have, uh, just thrown those, you know, types of rhythms and, you know, and odd meters to me, you know, pretty much my entire life. And I used to hate it and get frustrated because I was like, man, you know, I just want to play in four. I just want to play in three, you know, because growing up, that's what I heard. Uh, right. you know, when I was listening to the John Coltrane quartet, you know, they was playing in four three. They wouldn't play in five and seven and nine. And, and so, um, but I, I began to respect that uh, different composers and artists were just, you know, trying different things. They were going for something that they felt best represented themselves. And it was an opportunity for me to uh, expand my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what music is about. Is I mean, well, music is everything. Uh, so I don't want to pigeonhole music to being that it's just about this or that. Sure. It's everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was an opportunity for me to expand my rhythmic vocabulary to be able to understand um, all of these various meters and, and, and be able to approach them in a, a very organic way. And it, it, helped. Mm-hmm. it helped so much. Like now somebody can give me something in nine and it feels like four. Right. To me. It's, just, it's no more than just a natural cadence that I just hear. Sure. Yeah, that makes 
That makes total sense. It's a, it's a matter of, you know, if I'm pulling out what you're saying, it's just a matter of immersing yourself in that and being comfortable with it. You know, it's like when you, if you learn a new language, it's in the beginning, you may not be good at it. But once you get fluid, you don't have to, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to translate it in your head. It just happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and I, and I know everybody wants the, the fastest route because, um, it takes a lot of time to really sit with it and dissect it, you know, each one all the way through. But, uh, the fastest way I found is actually training your muscle memory to play free along with hearing something that's maybe playing in nine, playing in seven. Because it, it's, it's muscle memory. It's like riding a bike. Once you learn how to ride the bike, you never forget. You know, you might not be as professional as if you practiced it every day, but the understanding and the comfortability is there. Right. And that's ultimately what you want to create the most because we all hear music. We all understand it. That's why we have a sense of judging what's good and what's not good according to our taste. Right. Uh, so having that already uh, proves that you know what you want to sound like. You know what you want to be able to do. So the, so the biggest question is why can't you play what you hear? And that comes because your muscles can't produce what it is that you creatively hear inside of yourself. And so in order for your muscles to produce that, you have to train your muscles to have the, the, the fluidity, uh, the elasticity to be able to do the things that you creatively hear in your mind or mm-hmm. inside of yourself. That reminds me of something that I did years ago when I first started to learn sort of how to play polyrhythms was taken, you know, just playing something simple like two over three and literally just with my feet, you know, just like that and that and that and that. And then hearing it in one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. And flipping between the two of them. And once you can start to hear both sides of that, you know, and then you can, if you start going, putting other things over top of, of other numbers and, and things like that, and you start to get more and more comfortable with it. So, yeah, I, exactly. I agree. Uh, let's see. Next question is from Benjamin, who said, uh, who is the inspiration to your writing and how do you develop the skill of composing? Mm. Uh, well, my inspiration to writing comes from various sources. Uh, it's pretty much all the music that I pretty much have ever been exposed to. And I, so it's the same way with drums. Like you, you take, you know, everyone, if you ever heard play drums and it inspired you, what happens is you become a filter for how you can best represent that yourself. And that becomes your sound. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that you just, you become more accustomed to your sound. And the more accustomed you come to your sound, the more you develop on your sound. Uh, or you just develop your sound. So it's the same thing compositionally. Um, all the different composers, all the different tunes that pretty much gave you that feeling of, wow, I like this. You know, that's my shit right there. You know, right. All those things that inspired you in that way uh, then becomes, you know, something that you play close attention to. So now that's the inspiration part. After that, uh, you have to have some sort of skill on a different instrument because if you only play drums, you don't have any, um, you don't know how to play piano or guitar or something like that, mm-hmm. then it, it does become difficult because you can't express yourself melodically. Uh, you feel confined to just your rhythmic knowledge of just being a drummer and not being a um, knowledgeable on a chordal instrument. So for me, I actually play piano and that helps my, 
composing voice a lot because I do hear chord changes. I do hear melodies as if I'm a piano player because ultimately, like, piano was actually my first instrument. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted Mine to be too. a piano player, but, you know, my mom was too strict on the piano, so I switched to the drums. And uh, I'm glad I did. <laughs> right. I love it. Yeah, yeah, I love the drums. You're like, this is too hard. I'm not doing it. You're, you're too rough on me. I'm, I'm going to go switch. Oh, my God. Even, too many I'm rules. Glad my, it was just the, the difference. And, and that's why... Okay, so this brings up another topic. Um, that's why I'm free in the way that I approach, uh, per se, giving instruction mm-hmm. as far as drums, because my drum instructor was almost like Buddha of drums. Right. Like he, because he taught me when I was five years old. And so, you know, at a five year old, you can't be in there like, all right, you know, learn these rudiments or, sure. you, know, you know, check out this, this group in the seven and all this kind of stuff. You, five year old, you look up like, what? What's that? What are you saying? So uh, he had a way of allowing me to play, and then he would come and just shape what I was doing. So, like I said, if I was playing something on the snare drum and just going wild, he, you know, instead of saying, no, don't do this, he would give me an exercise. Like, he would take a drumstick, and he would put it over my sticks, and he would be like, okay, still do everything you're doing, but don't hit the stick. And so, and each time, you know, every so often, he would start to bring the stick down. Right. And what it, it, what it taught me to do was, you know, organically to use more wrists and less this. Because, you know, when you're young and you're just trying to express yourself, it's just like your whole body just going all over the place. Sure. But he knew that you could get the same sound uh, with less motion. And, and it was brilliant. So instead of him saying like, oh, you know, you're playing all over the place, why don't you try, you know, just using your wrists? Where sometimes when people verbally say something to you, it's hard for you to understand. He took a physical approach and just had to stick and had to stick go down closer and closer and closer. And that trained me to be able to like, okay, oh, oh, can't hit the stick, can't hit the stick, can't hit the stick, can't hit the And next thing I know, everything, I was doing the same thing, getting the same sound, but it was all here instead of here. Sure. And it was, it was amazing. So, you know, that, that helped a lot. That helped a lot. And so... In the piano, it's kind of the same way. I, I forget the question. I'm sorry. I don't know. That story was so inspiring to me because I remember. I like it. But um, uh, no. Well, we were uh, talking about your about how you developed your how you developed your uh, your skill of composing. A composer. Right. So uh, for me, uh, I guess it's not relative to being the same thing compositionally. So that was a whole different topic. So that was the the topic of how to uh, use more wrists and not have to overexert your body. But uh, composing wise, play. Well, we started with the piano. You did mention that you started playing with the pi- you started playing piano, so you hear things uh, rhythmically and and melodically differently. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Play a different instrument. It helps. Uh, if you don't know how to. Just take the time to just work with it. It's enough software. And I mean, uh, I, you know, the guys at Apple and, you know, GarageBand, Logic, you know, they've done a good job at, you know, making synchronizing stuff so much easier now than sitting at the piano. Mm-hmm. Because me, I still like to sit at the piano and actually compose. Uh, but, you know, that's because I can actually play the piano a little bit. But, now, you know, you can have a keyboard and you can quantize something like you can you can throw something down and you can quantize it. And then you can also take um, an orchestra, like an orchestrational approach to something. And um, which is something I like to do. Like sometimes I'll take a software like Sibelius and I'll just throw a bunch of notes on the page. Mm-hmm. And um, and just, you know, I won't listen to it at first. I just throw all the notes on the page. They're just uh, like I'm making a painting. 
and then I click the play button, you know, to see how horrible it sounds. And then I orchestrate because I'm like, wow, there's some good stuff there. Mm -hmm. And you just orchestrate it from a listener's perspective and you can create songs that way. Uh, there's so many different ways you can create songs. Uh, you can just take a groove and create a song based on just a groove. Uh, you know, there's no limitations on how to create something that inspires you. Right. And that's what I do is uh, I take all of those resources and all of those avenues to uh, create something that completely inspires. That's a good answer. Uh, next question. So it says, um, wow, there's a lot of questions here. Um, what does, there's a couple of people that ask this, so I'll just kind of combine them all together. Uh, it's okay. what are, what does a practice routine for you look like? Uh, and what are you working on these days? in terms of practice well well okay see now my practice routine is different um because i understand a lot of different things already uh like in the past my practice routines have been brutal uh definitely like you know i would spend like a month just playing left-handed um you know i would do these weird like you know push-up lift weight kind of things with, with chris day because we grew up together and uh just to get our arms super tired and then try to play as fast as we could and we talk about that a lot in in we talk about in the, in the podcast too. So if you guys want to check that out, it's, it's funny. Like you go into detail about it, which is cool. So sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. It's amazing. Uh, so in the past, I, I feel like, you know, wherever you are, just, just do as much as possible. So I guess to catch everything up, like, uh, I, I'm not huge into rudiments because I feel like rudiments are just other patterns. So if you have a hard time coming up with your own patterns, then definitely check out you know, like the syncopation book, you know, just, just because, though, you know, there are notated rudiments that really help you to just get a gist of how to use right to left motions mm -hmm. and like, you know, and left to right motions, you know, because you want to be able to go back and forth. But um, if you come up with patterns pretty easily, then maybe you don't necessarily need rudiments because that's all they are. It's just different patterns to help you, you know, in a way, create your own language around the kit. And, uh, and so that's the reason why I don't necessarily like rudiments so much is because then I feel like different um, uh, patterns that I would come up with would tend to sound similar to other drummers' patterns because we're all coming out of the same book. And I never wanted to sound like anybody else. I always wanted to have like a, a different approach. And so for me, when I, I figured out that, oh, wow, okay, a paradiddle is just what a paradiddle is, I was like, well, maybe I can come up with something else that gives me the same response. And I would work on that. And so, you know, instead of like, you know, left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, you know, I, I don't know. I would just sit there and, and think about it, but try something else and mm -hmm. see what happens naturally. And, and just kind of go with that. And then, or if I couldn't, I would just take that pattern and displace it different ways. You know, instead of like uh, left, right, left, left, I'd be like left, right, foot, foot, you know, or foot, left, right, right. You know, just anything just to make it different and just mm -hmm. try something else. Challenging so, your comfort zone, constantly challenging your comfort zone. Exactly. Right. So those are the things that I did growing up you know, throughout my whole life, just every possible scenario that I could as in many ways, as many ways possible that I could just dissect the drums. I did it. Now it's different. Now it's just more of being able to stay fresh physically to be able to express myself the best way that I feel like I can. And so with that, it's just a lot of warm-ups for me now. Uh, a lot of making sure that my wrists are flexible, my fingers, um, you know, everything because the muscle memory is already intact. Mm -hmm. It's already there. Like, you know, my, my brain to muscle 
uh, synchronicity or, you know, communication, line of communication is already intact as far as uh, what my body can do. So I, I just, I warm up and just, I stay loose and lucid just so that no matter what idea comes in, I, I don't have a fear as far as trying to uh, interpret it. Right, right. Uh, or going for it. Uh, that's kind of my thing now. So now I tend to practice on the spot. And that's the beauty of probably playing jazz is that in most scenarios, you get the opportunity to practice while playing. Whereas like, you know, if you're in like a rock band or, you know, more kind of concrete situation where you have to actually play a groove, uh, it's a little bit more restricting, but it's great. You know, right. that's great, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, just doesn't have that jazz, imp- improvisational element to it to where you're you have the freedom to stretch and. All that. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's totally not the same. I mean, that's cool. You know, I, I like those situations too. It's just, it's a different adrenaline and a different discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, you know, playing jazz offers that flexibility to me to be able to, um, to just try different things. And because it, it's all very sonically response, you know, responsive. So right. w- when a person plays a certain thing, um, you know, I have an opportunity to react to it any way that I think about it i can you know internalize it or, you know and that to me is is wonderful yeah uh, you know yeah sure it's pretty, you know you just practice it i mean just imagine I, you know i don't know how extensive our listeners are as far as like listening to a lot of different jazz albums but when you listen to guys like elvin and tony and jack dejanet and roy haynes on various albums and how they responded to what was happening i feel like a lot of that had to do because of the same process that we're talking about they were so connected with their instrument on a communicative sense, meaning that they had enough muscle memory and enough comfortability at playing their instrument that they could actually communicate from the instrument and not just, you know, be a beat maker. Right. Which is good too. Like I, you know, there's two different skill sets, two different skill sets. You know, like I imagine could Rohane sit there and just lay down or, you know, at the Jay Dilla groove or something like that, you know, like I, I fantasize about those things and, and I try those things out, you know, did you ever hear that? Every, did you ever hear that buddy rich but, funk album? I did not. Oh my God. No, I, would love to hear that. I have it. No. I'll, yeah. It's what? some, yeah. It's oh, okay. some rare, like, it, I don't It's not like, it's not like a straight funk record, but it's him like playing backbeat, like funk stuff. Just, just going. For it. Yeah. Well, it, it makes sense because, um, you know, Buddy Rich was one of those guys that I feel like that, um, you know, just as far as, you know, being in a position to wow people with a lot of technique and a lot of chops and just a lot of feel, just such a soulful individual, um, you know, he, he, you know, he broadcast that, I, I guess, in a way that all drummers that we feel like we would want to be on that level. Cause, you know, he was on all the different talk shows, mm-hmm. and, you know, various large stages. I, you know, I believe one of his last concerts he played in front of like 50,000 people or something like that. Uh, he had, you know, he was, he was much older. So he still wanted to wow the audience. So what he did, I think he set up like three different drum sets and each drum set sounded different. And he just, he went between all the different drum sets, you know, just a He's- professional showman. And, you know, amazing drummer, just all the way to the core. Right. So, you know. The real the I, real deal in every aspect of the word, man. Exactly. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he would have wanted to do like a, a punk album just to be like, oh, shit, I can do that too. Right. Right. I'm Buddy Rich. <laughs> right. You know what's up? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey, has your drumming progress hit the ceiling? Well, the cure for stale drumming is to receive expert critique, and you can do that with the drum program at Musicians Institute. While most music schools have a small staff of instructors, MI boasts over 20 working LA drummers, including Gordon Campbell, Kenny Arnoff, Ryan Brown, Blair Sinta, Brendan Buckley, and Jason Sutter. You can enroll now by going to mi.edu. Musicians Institute, instrumental in life. Guys, if you're looking to save some bread on your next drum or accessory purchase, head over to CasioMusic.com. For over 70 years, they've been serving the musician, getting the right instrument into the hands of the musician at the right price. But now you can save 20% if you use the promo code POD20. That's P-O-D-20. You'll save 20% any order over 149. You can also give them a call. They can walk you through your purchase. And there's a reason why they've been in business for over 70 years, because they get you the right instrument and they have great customer service. And the best part, now you can save 20%. Use the promo code POD20. That's P-O-D-20 at CasioMusic.com. Now let's get back into it with Eric Harlan. What are the qualities as a person and or a musician do you feel that have most contributed to your success? That's an awesome question. Mm. I'm glad I don't I'm glad I don't have to answer it. <laughs> oh my god. As a no, it's a good question. A, you know. uh, it says what are what are the qualities as a person and as a musician do you feel that have and most yeah, that have contributed to your success. Oh man, um, just being man, being open, uh, being open one. That's one, uh, and being. Uh, I hate to use the word professional because it's such a broad answer, but uh, it's definitely part of it. But I, I would say the main thing is being open because the one thing with dealing with other musicians is that there are a lot of people that are very, very particular, and they're very, you know, a lot of people that are very moody, and you know. You know, it's just sometimes their ego still gets in the way, and that's cool because my ego gets in the way at times. But the more you can understand that and be, I hate to use, well, yeah, be tolerable of it. Just be like, oh, that's cool. You know, that's just them. I'm being uncomfortable in this moment, and you know, and that's the best way they know how to express themselves. If you, the more forgiving of that you can be, the more people will love having you around because people love the freedom to be able to be themselves without judgment. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I aspire in, you know, aspire to do. Like my whole thing is about, you know what, man, Hey, whatever floats your boat, you know, if you need to curse, you know, if you need to storm out of the room, if you need to be upset or whatever, whatever you got to do to get to your level of creativity, I'm not going to judge you. Either. Sure. I may sure. charge you a higher fee, you know, but, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not going to judge you on it because right. I understand sometimes it's, it's hard to be an artist and there's a lot of pressure. At, it's not. It's no pressure being creative. The pressure is being creative and trying to you know monetize your level of creativity to right. the point to where you're trying to be successful. Mm -hmm. And that's because everybody has different you know versions of what success means to them. Right. Like like for me, I said in the podcast, I felt successful once I moved to New York. Mm -hmm. So. For me, this was easy because I felt like I was already successful. I was like, oh, I'm in New York now. I'm cool. Right. I made so, it. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that was no like, oh, you know, I got to make this amount of money. I got to do this and I got to do that. A lot of people carry those pressures. And, you know, I understand that now because now, you know, being a father and having children, having a family, you know, wow, you know, those pressures become real. And 
it, but instead of being discouraged by them, by them, I use them as tools of inspiration. I use them as, oh, you know what? Okay, you know, I need to go out and get this done. But I also know that I can't do it necessarily by myself. So I apply myself as much as possible. Meaning that, you know, I, you know, I practice and I, I feel like, okay, if any, whatever anybody gives me, I'm going to do the best that I can to execute, you know, whatever they need me to execute to the best of my ability. Right. After that, you know, I have to just leave some stuff up to just whatever, you know, whether you call it just God or spirituality, you know, you can't control everything. Uh, right. You just have to trust that, you know, like energy attracts to like energy and that, you know, you're always going to be somewhere where you're wanted and it's cool. And if that situation dissipates, okay, it's going to move on to something else that's going to be even greater or, you know, something more coherent to, uh, you know, that, you know, that's more relevant to who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. I mean, that's the process of life is how everything changes. Uh, right. You know, that's life. Every day is different. Every, you know, and it's not supposed to be. The same. And I think it's, you know, it's just a matter of it always being the right time to do the right thing. You know what I mean? Like, right. And, and I think that when you string enough of those, whether you want to say ethical decisions or, you know, whether, whatever, however you want to describe it, but if you constantly, nobody always makes the right decision, but like, if you just do the right thing and you're, you're humble and you're genuine about what you do, like you and I admittedly, like you and I don't know each other extremely well. You know, we've, we talked uh, a few times, we did the podcast together. Now we're doing this together, but everything from the minute you and I have talked up until this point, you've been gracious. You've been humble. You've been, you know, easy to work with. You've been in a good mood and all, you know, and you know, we're not working on this huge project together, but we're doing this. And now when we leave here, Anybody that I talk to, anytime your name ever comes up, what am I going to say? I'm going to say, oh man, he's great. You know, I worked with him with this. And you do that a couple hundred times or a couple thousand times. And that word continuously spreads, you know, it's, it, all that stuff it adds up, man. It always does. It does. You know? It does. it does. So, you know, yeah, just, you know, be the best of you that you can be and be okay with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it's something about just being, you know, confidence, you know, rings very loud. Like I, um, I'm not very confident in a lot of things, but, you know, I, my confidence comes from just trusting that everything is ultimately going to work out. Right. Okay. Right. And the more I trust that, I just, you know, it gives me a sense of peace and ease to just allow uh, a course to, you know, to have its own natural transition or, you know, continuation. Right. Whatever it is. And like you said, you can't control everything. So you put the best energy out there, you put the best performance and, and you do the preparation and then you sort of got to say, all right, I, I did what I got to do. Now let's see what the universe wants to return, you know, yeah, I, back. I, I, mean, I go back, you know, because pe different people have posted different things on YouTube, you know, various solos and stuff that I've done. And I go back and I listen to it and I be like, ah, God, really? You know, like I'm all, I'm constantly like, oh my God, I could have done that better. Oh, that's horrible. Like, oh, why is that even up there? Right. Why do people even like the way I sound? You know, I go through the same thing of just overly analyzing and judging, mm -hmm. you know, my own plan. But, you know, I don't know what everybody likes. And, you know, I think it's when you think you know what everybody likes is when it, it tends to, you know, you start to pigeonhole yourself to one thing because ultimately you just know what you like. Right. And that's cool, you know, but I'm, you know, I know I've learned, I couldn't say I know, I've learned that it's not just about what I like. 
you know, there's billions of people in this world that all have different points of views and I'm just open to it mm-hmm. and love it. So Benjamin, Benjamin actually asked a lot of questions. Uh, so one of them was, what was the San Francisco Jazz Collective like for you? And again, we talked a lot about that on the podcast about how, you know, San Francisco has a special place in your heart. Uh, and so maybe if you want to touch on that and then we, they can reference the podcast as well to check that out. Um, the collective was great. Um, it was a great opportunity to be in a band. Well, one, um, I, I would say the special part about that band was having the opportunity to work with Miguel Zinon because uh, he's a, an amazing composer, one. Uh, two, he's a, uh, <laughs> he's a hard guy to play for. Because, you know, in his compositions, at least from the drum chair, everything is written out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he has exact, an exact palette or an, an exact way that he's hearing the drums. And he knows how to write it out exactly. And so that was a, a big challenge for me because usually you work with people and they have like a gist, you know, they have like an actual, you know, groove idea, you know, and then you're just kind of reading the sheet, the lead sheet music. Right. And following along and coming up with your own ideas. But with him, like he had actual like, you know, snare symbol, you know, notation that he actually wanted you to do. And uh, fortunate for me, you know, I... I was classically trained as well as being jazz trained. So when I was in high school, I studied, you know, uh, classical percussion. I was in classical percussion ensemble and the same in college. So I understood where he was coming from, but it's another one of those things. It's a different kind of discipline. And, uh, and that was a big challenge for me, but it, it really helped a lot. And, you know, he's very rhythmic diverse. So he added to, um, a lot of my understanding as far as rhythm because that was something he would do like i would see him sit you know on the tour bus when we would be on tour and and he would just be sitting in the back you know thinking about probably the most the next complex rhythm that he could come up with and you know it was a way to have a drummer play like these two various rhythms at the same time you know Mm -hmm. one with your left foot and left hand the other with your right hand and right foot and you're like thanks thanks for writing all that (laughs) exactly i would be like oh man you know, because I felt like, okay, well, if I had a month to really work on it, then yeah, but, you know, you would have like a couple of days at most before the rehearsal would, would come up. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the challenging thing about the collective is that was just him. Everybody wrote great music and everyone had like a different voice. And that was the most challenging thing about it is the fact that when you get eight people in an ensemble together, especially on that magnitude, everyone is, you know, really trying to put their best foot forward. Uh, as a musician, but also as a composer. And so it's, it's one of those prime examples where different people's egos come out. Mm-hmm. And not egos necessarily saying it in a bad way, but just their personality comes out. And, you know, and what they really want to say. And so they become, you know, not as forgiving as if it was like just their trio setting at like a jazz club for one night. Right. You know, where they would be like, oh, yeah, we're just going to play these tunes and it's cool. You know, we'll, we'll musically dance around and improv and find our way. Sometimes they become a little bit more strict because they really want, they know that their music is going to be heard on a larger scale. Right. And so there's a lot more fear that's involved. And, you know, they want to make sure that it's presented in the right way. And, you know, and so that pressure starts, you know, begins to fall on you because they want you to actually execute it the way that that Sibelius file was executed. Sure. And you're like, whoa. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a, you know, that's a computer, right? <laughs> exactly. And it's a challenge and, you know, you're like, oh, okay, cool. And it's a chance to, you know, to, like, I like to, to 
to try to rise to the challenge or fail, you know. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, man, I'm giving it the best that I can. And if I if I just don't size up, that's cool too. You know, you don't always 100% execute it all the way. Right. And that's the that's the beauty of music is sometimes you can introduce something else that's equally beautiful and equally supportive, and that still works in the mm-hmm. process. Of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so the next question was, and I'm going to pronounce this guy's name wrong, but it says, uh, what did you most gain or learn from playing with, what is Zakir Hussein? Zakir? Oh, Zakir Hussein. Zakir Zakir Hussein. Hussein, Right. I thought I was going to pronounce it wrong. I pronounced it correctly. Uh, so the question was, what did you learn most or what did you most gain or learn from playing with Zakir? Oh man. Well, first of all, his extensive knowledge on rhythms, uh, because, Zakir just, I mean, you, now that's rhythmic science right there. Like if you want to take science and put it in rhythm, that's, I mean, it's, there's no way that you could, he's, uh, just to hear the stories of how his father wouldn't even let him touch the tabla until he could, first of all, sing all the different rhythms that were in the different ragas and the tals that he was supposed to be able to execute. Right. So, you know, for them, it was like you had to be able to sing it first before you could even play it. That's so what, what nationality is he? That's Indian. Yeah. Uh, so he, so, like, uh, so he has all these, so he's learning or he has all these Indian rhythms, which in and of themselves are, are impossible almost, you know? Yeah. Well, he's, I mean, just to give, I guess, uh, a little knowledge about Zaki, uh, so Zaki is the son of, of uh, Alaraka Mm-hmm. Alaraka was, or it, you know, was because he's he's not with us any longer. But was I would say uh, the greatest tabla player of all time. And Zakir is his son. Zakir is also the greatest tabla player of all time. <laughs> and it's um, and what makes Zakir so amazing. And uh, you know, and I would say arguably so. You know, we always have to say that to be politically correct. But uh, I would, you know, Zakir is really amazing because he's not only just so diverse. And, and knowledgeable in all of the Eastern traditions of his instrument, but he's uh, found a way to Westernize it as well. So you know he can impri- he can use all of those Eastern techniques and all of the the cadences and uh, you know the tals and the ragas and use them as forms of improvisation. And that's something you know, to my knowledge, hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. He's also one of the only few tabla players that you know uh, he plays the opposite way. So I think, you know, yeah, most tabla players, I think, play the bass with the left. They play the, no, they play the bass with the right hand and oh, I don't know. But anyway, he I don't, I don't, first. I'm the wrong exactly. guy to ask, to be um, honest with you. But he also, the, you know, his, his melodic hand, I, I call it the melodic hand because it's not the bass hand. He also uses all five fingers. Like most tabla players only use three fingers. So like mm-hmm. when you play the tabla, it's like this, but he plays like this. And each finger is strong. There's no weak link. And, um, and so, and when you listen to the information that comes out, and I, I say information because, <laughs> man, it's like Morse code, you know, to the max. Right. Of, you know, any rhythm you can think of, you know, he can play it and then play something else on top of it while keeping something else going. You know, there's no feet involved. It's all hands. Mm-hmm. So, it's, I, you know, I, just listening to it has inspired me so much. And giving me uh, a broader palette of uh, rhythmic understanding uh, to apply to the drum set and find it because, you know, you know, that's like having 10 arms. Right. Well, you know, everything for us is coming here. We're using fingers to try to interpret, but it's still we pretty much only have four limbs to work with. And so that was a challenge is to find a way 
to execute a lot of the different sounds and rhythms that he would do just with my limbs and it's, it's been an amazing challenge and I've loved every minute of it. And I know, I remember learning, first sort of learning about Tabla and I saw Treelock, Treelock Gertrude and I was like, whoa, I was like, what is, what is this? You know, this is a whole nother, just like com- completely blew my mind. Since you, since you brought up Treelock, this is a great story. So, um, we did a concert in Dubai where it was me, Zaki Hussein and Treelock Gertrude. And, uh, and so in the beginning, we were all supposed to just play like a 10 minute solo. And then we were going to all come out and play together, you know, you know, me, Zakir, and Treelock. And so, uh, Treelock wanted to go first. I was like, cool, we're going to go first. And so Treelock went out there to go first. Cause I, you know, I guess that was a thing between him and Zakir. Um, you know, he really wanted to put his best foot forward. And so he went out there, he played, I swear, everything he did. Everything. Right. Like he started with a water bucket and then he moved to like, uh, like a miniature drum set, you know, with some pads and then he executed stuff. Anyway, it ended up taking like about 25 minutes of, you know, which was way over right. what he was supposed to be. But it was, it was interesting because I was backstage with Zakir and Zakir was, was, you know, he was a little disappointed, you know, uh, that, you know, he didn't stick to the 10 minute, you know, you know, program. Right. And so, uh, but, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, man, I was, you know, I was enjoying it. I was like, oh, cool. So I was supposed to go next, you know, once he was done. And then Zach kid grabbed me. He was like, no. I'm a-. And I was like, oh, oh. Here we go. You know, it's that, it's that moment, you know, when you know, like, something's about to, amazing is about to happen. And you're not sure. And so, um, so Zach kid goes up there, you know, still traditional top of set up. Probably, I think, maybe at the most had three up there. And, um, man, I don't know what he played, but whatever he played, I knew it was amazing, but it was so amazing that in the back, you know, I, I, I know I was so moved in the moment because you know what Tree Lock played was was also amazing. Sure, but you know, I was, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, oh man, he just talent, you know, amazing and super talented. But Zakir played some stuff that I felt like was otherworldly, and that was just my interpretation. But then it was funny. I looked over and I saw Tree Lock sitting like right next to me, and he was crying, and I was like, whoa. And then next thing you know, he just started bowing from backstage and was calling Zakir Masters. That was how bad what was transpiring on stage. Like I knew it was it was heavy. Right. But then when I saw the response of everybody, I was like, oh my God, this Is there a videotape of this anywhere? Man, I I wish I have no I mean, you know, probably that festival in Dubai probably sure. was, but man. Man, I you know, I was that. And you know, it's just that's Zakir, man. It's, right. You can play some stuff, man. It's just so you guys check up, check out Zakir Hussein too. Definitely. Um, so the next question: Who are some guys that you haven't played with yet that you would like to play with? You know, man, it's funny. Uh, like I've always wanted to play with Chickaboo. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to play with uh, like Herbie Hancock. And but most importantly, I always want to. I still do. Uh, want to play with Keith Jarrett. I, w- I would say that he was probably like, you know, of the jazz idiom, like the top of my list. Mm-hmm. People that I want to play with. Just because, man, it did something about him that I just, I just thirst and hunger to be on stage with. Like, right. I, I really admire his spirit and, um, and, you know, I, you know, you hear various stories about him being, you know, difficult or whatever. I don't, I don't care about any of that. Right. You're like, I'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll get through it. Don't worry right. about it, you know. 
But uh, I, def- I definitely would like to, to perform in him. But I said, you know, Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock just because, you know, I grew up listening to both of those guys. And I, I felt like those are probably the, the two guys that I haven't had the opportunity to actually play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Have you played with uh, um, with Joey DeFrancesco? I haven't played with Joey DeFrancesco. No, I wasn't sure. I know that, that whole family. That's why I asked. Oh, cool, cool. no, no, I never played with Joey. Yeah, you know, yeah, man, Joey's amazing. Man. Yeah. I, I wasn't you know, sure because I know that you guys are sort of in the same, you know, in the same scene. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, I didn't grow up necessarily with a relationship with his music. Sure. Like I did with Chick Corea. Sure, Herb, sure. You know, yeah. I know pretty much all of Chick's music. Yeah. Know? I know pretty much all of Herbie's music. And uh, But I have been fortunate to play with McCoy. I was in McCoy Tynas band. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I played with Joe Henderson, I played with Billy Carter, you know, Charles Lloyd, you know, Michael Brecker, you know, sure. I played with so many of the, the greats and the legends, but those are the guys that I haven't had opportunity to play with. Right. And, uh, and, you know, it's cool if it never happens. I mean, it's great because, you know, those guys get particular too, and now that they're older, I understand it's just, it becomes, you know, they already have great drums that they play with. Like, right. I mean, she chooses between Dave Weckl, you know, you can call Vinny Caliuta. And then, you know, Brian Blade, and then he got uh, uh, Marcus Gilmore. So, it's, I mean, he's cool. You know, right. don't need me. You know, I'm like, hey, I'm just, I'm just another, you know, All right. just one more thing. And Jeff Ballard. Like, right. Jeff Ballard, he played, you know, they had an amazing trio. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And the same with Herbie. I mean, Herbie got, you know, Vinny on speed dial. So, you know. Sure. Yeah. He's like, Nothing <laughs> drummers lined up want to play with her. Yep. So, you know, it's cool. You know, I get to play with, you know, I grew up with Jason Moran and Robert Glassford, and I play with Taylor Eichstein. You know, mm-hmm. There's many Aaron Parks. You know, a lot of prominent piano players of, of today that I have, you know, the fortunate to just not just play with, but I've watched these guys grow up. And Who's, who's the keyboard know, player that plays with, um, that plays with Chris Potter? Oh, uh, Craig Taborn. That's his name, Craig Taborn. Yeah. Craig Taborn. Yeah. yeah we, we we play in prison together. We yeah. Holland and Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, I'm I, I'm not at a loss for piano. Players. No, he and he's a monster. That's why I was asking. I like him. Yeah. Man, he is amazing. So yeah, I, you know, man, if I never touched him, you know, because sometimes. You want to play with somebody like Herbie or Chick just because they're super famous. And, mm-hmm. and that's not what music is about. It's not always about playing with the celebrities. It's about, you know, having a relationship, you know, with somebody that you are playing with and y'all can create something magical yourselves to where, you know, those guys want to listen. Right. And, um, you know, that's kind of my thing. You know, I love the relationship that I have with all the piano players that, you know, I play with today. You know, another great pianist is uh, Gerald Clayton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Man, I mean, the list just goes on and on. Chris Bowers, he's another great piano player. Uh, James Francis, he's another young piano player. We got a project coming out. Um, yeah, everybody just, you know, great, man. Right, right. You know, just like drums. There's, there's so many great drummers out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, so many that I get, I'm surprised. I still get recognized. I'm like, man, this guy's up there doing things. Oh, uh, stop. <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, man, you got to stay. Yes, you know, I, I agree. I like you because... It's an opportunity for me to just check out something that's not what I would normally do. Mm-hmm. And it gives me inspiration to try something different. And, right. Or just check out something different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's, it's, a, it's a wide world we live in. Yes, it is. Uh, so one last question before I, I, I don't think there's any more questions. Uh, so 
if people, I know that we talked about this before that you don't teach private lessons, um, but if people maybe want to connect with you or, or maybe get some other questions answered by you or whatever, what's the best way to do that? Email on social media? What do you, what do you suggest they do? Uh, probably email is probably the best. Um, I mean, social media, it's kind of hard, you know, you got to admit that, you know, the, if you use social media, Facebook is probably the best. Okay. It's hard for me to do it any other way. I mean, you could, you know, you could try Twitter, but I, I usually save that just for just kind of random things that I'm just kind of putting out. But, uh, only, only because it's, you know, the, you limit it to a certain amount of characters. Right. And so at least with Facebook, you know, as far as like responding with a message and email, I can actually, you know, get in detail or yeah, get into more detail and actually give you an actual answer instead of like, Oh, just, just do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of vibe. So that's, that's, that's more of my thing. Uh, you know, I wish there was a better way that there needs to be, maybe I should do more like, you know, periscope. I don't know. Sure. Where, you know, just, just turn it on and just be like, question. You should, you know, What's I'm always paranoid that nobody's going to come on. Uh, if they're gonna, if people come on and listen to me, they'll definitely come on and listen to you. Oh man, I, you know, I don't know. I just, you know, I don't take people's time for granted. I know me. I, you know, we'll get you. Like we'll get you. All, we'll get you hooked up and make sure that you're you're broadcasting live. <laughs> so um yeah man but eric thank you uh thank you for doing this i know that everybody enjoyed it as well there was uh a bunch of a bunch of positive feedback coming in so i appreciate it indeed man thank you uh such a pleasure i love it as you can see i clearly like to talk so i dig it so there you have it the one and only eric harlan dropping some knowledge Also, don't forget, if you want to get those emails on Monday and Friday that keeps you in the know, gives you all of the information about the podcast that were just released and also some cool stuff that I think that you will dig outside of the Drummer's Research space, you can just go to drummersresource.com, sign up for the mailing list, and you'll also get a copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations. One thing to note, if you're already on the mailing list, then you should already be getting these emails. If you're not, just hit me up, nick at drummersresource.com. And big thanks to my production man, Mr. Justin Thomas. I appreciate all the hard work that he puts into this podcast and this podcast would be nothing without Justin. So big thanks to him and until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.